What Opportunity Zones regulatory issues does the Novogradic Working Group address in their recent comment letter to the IRS? And what can you expect at the upcoming Novogradic Opportunity Zone Conference in Long Beach, California? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson, and today I'm joined by John Shiretti. John is a partner at Novogratic & Company, a top 50 national accounting firm. John is also the leader of the Novogratic Working Group, a membership organization for Opportunity Zone industry professionals. And this April, Novogratic is hosting their 2020 Spring OZ Conference in Long Beach, California. John joins us from his office in Dover, Ohio. John, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jimmy. I'm very excited to be here. Excited to be here with you as well, John. I had uh, Mike Novogratic on the podcast uh, a couple months ago and excited to get uh, your point of view on Opportunity Zones and and the conference coming up here. So let's dive in. Uh, John Novogratic, as many of our listeners probably know, it's that firm is really on the cutting edge of Opportunity Zones and has really been one of the educational leaders in the space uh, from the get-go. Can you provide a little bit more background on the firm and on yourself? Sure. I'll start with myself. So uh, I've been a CPA most of my career, about 30 years, um, the best years of which have been with Novogratic, uh, 18 of those years. Novogratic's actually been around for 30 years, and uh, it's based in San Francisco. We have approximately 25 offices and 800 employees. Our clients represent a broad range of industries. We, we have a major emphasis on the real estate sector, though, and also on tax incentives. And so these include the low-income housing tax credit, the historic tax credit, the renewable energy tax credit, the new market tax credit, and then opportunity zones. So that's our focus. We obviously get involved in other accounting and tax issues uh, away from those, but those those incentives are our main focus. Um, historically, we've been on the leading edge of all of these incentives. I'll give you an example: the new market tax credit. We were involved from the very beginning. In, the, in that space, we also sponsored a technical working group, and it included industry stakeholders, which were involved in that space. And the rulemaking process, we were very involved in. We actually influenced that rulemaking process. And then we actually literally wrote the book on uh, new market tax credits. We have a handbook that we publish. Likewise, with all these other programs that I mentioned, we're always recognized as a national expert. We work with all the players in the industry. We work with investors. We work with opportunity funds, we work with developers and different community groups, nonprofits, and primarily on the front end to help structure these incentive-based financings. We do a lot of transaction structuring, transaction accounting, and then we also provide the normal tax and audit and compliance services around these transactions. So that's, that's no regretting. With respect to the Opportunity Zone, because of our involvement in these other community development finance incentives, one of the co-sponsors actually approached us and asked us our input on this initial bill during 2015. And um, we began to track this bill at that time in, in 2015. And at that time, we also 
consistent with the new market tax credits, we assembled a small technical working group of likely participants that just to gather and discuss how best we could use this incentive. And we were also very fortunate at that time to have the opportunity to interact with uh, the Economic Innovation Group, who's the really the impetus and the architect of of opportunity zones, and so it was it was very fortunate that we we uh, we were able to interact with them. Um, we played a technical role, um, gave some technical advice around around the incentive, around the bill, um, and then to our surprise, it actually passed in 2017. And so since then, um, our technical working group has grown to uh, 125 members, member organizations, and. Like the new market group, you know, it, it runs the gamut of, of the industry. We have prestigious law firms that are part of this working group, uh, notable community development, nonprofits, uh, financial institutions, of course, developers, um, business owners, and then multi-asset funds make up this Opportunity Zone group. No, that that's great, John. Thank you. That uh, you mentioned that you literally wrote the book on new markets tax credits. Uh, I believe you literally wrote the book, or at least a book, a handbook on on opportunity zones as well. Is is that right? That's correct, and that's actually undergoing a a revision to incorporate the final regs as we speak. Right. Yeah. Those final regs just hitting uh, about a couple months ago now. So that's that's really interesting to to hear that you guys were involved with this incentive so early on back in 2015 when it was still uh, being written essentially. And and then just a couple of years later, it was passed at the end of 2017. And now here we are today, a little more than two years later, beginning of 2020. And you guys are, are definitely on the leading edge of, of Opportunity Zones as, as we've mentioned. So you talk about the working group a little bit already. Uh, can you give us a little bit more background on it and and who who can join it and 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 how they can go about joining it if they want to? Sure, anybody can join it. There's a fee to join, an annual fee. We gather once a month. Uh, actually, at a minimum once a month, we have a conference call. Primarily, our objective is to foster like effective collaboration around this program, best practices for using the incentive, how to implement the incentive. This includes, of course, influencing uh, the rulemaking process. And so we are very instrumental, um, very active in in during, during the rulemaking process. We actually provided four comment letters during that process, the Treasury, uh, once before the initial tranche regs, and then commented on both both sets of proposed regs, and then and then also um, recently commented on the final regs. We also had some supplemental letters around affordable housing and and how uh, the incentive could be um, enhanced to help affordable housing and opportunity zones. So we've been quite active on the rulemaking front. Um, the IRS has been very very responsive to our comments, and uh, in fact they they've uh, considered most of our recommended solutions. I'd say. Almost all of our recommended solutions. There's very few of them that didn't make it in the implemented final regs. As far as who can join the working group, you know, anyone can join the working group that feels like they would benefit from the conversations around how best to use the incentive. No, that's great. And uh, yeah, obviously, your firm has been instrumental in in some of the rulemaking process with the IRS. You've submitted many comment letters. As you mentioned, and uh, I, I want to ask you about your comment, Leonard, on the on the final regs and, and what you think still needs to get buttoned up in in a few minutes here. But but first, I want to back up for a minute, John, and see if I could just get your 
30,000 foot view of opportunity zones. What overall is the state of opportunity zones at this moment now from, from your point of view? Well, I mean, it definitely appears to be on the right track. I don't know if you know this, you probably know this. We, we actually track fundraising for a subset of, of multi-asset funds in the marketplace. Yes, Mike, Mike, Mike and I discussed that at length during his podcast episode with me a couple months ago. Uh, it's fascinating what you're doing there in that space and the, and the data you're, you're collecting. So, yeah, please continue. Yeah. So the latest data from 350 funds, again, it's a subset, um, is $8.5 billion of capital raised. So because of this, is just a subset. I mean, we, we're looking at only multi-asset funds, only those multi-asset funds that respond to us. And then, uh, you know, we get some public data as well in, in the marketplace for some of the public funds. Um, so we really think that this number's obviously low. Maybe, maybe it's double that, which would be about 17 billion. And then, you know, it's probably around 20 billion when you take into consideration all the self-funded type stuff, um, it, which is which really tracks pretty well with the government estimates to this point, the $20 billion number. So we think fundraising's on track. Personally, I think the real power of this incentive is the focus it's created on struggling, these struggling communities that got very little attention before this incentive. And now they're all the buzz, right? Everybody's focusing on them. And so ha having this focus and all the stakeholders that come together to just try to discover ways to bring public and private and philanthropic capital to these zones, I think is the real power of this incentive. Uh, the, you know, the actual incentive itself is a tool. You hear people talk about it being a tool and it helps. It helps maybe get over the hump. But it, I think it's really helped to just create this focus of, hey, these are the areas that really need support in the incentive. And so I think that's the real power. I think it's also, it's just getting started. So to be it, I don't know what the government estimate, you know, how far along they figured we were going to be in the in the rule process. But really, two years is pretty quick. But you know, we just got the final rules, and so I think it's really poised to explode now that folks are a little more comfortable how to operate in this space. Uh, I also yeah. think it, you know, it's a bit politicized of late, anyway. <laughs> but I think that's normal uh, for someone that's been around the new market tax credit program. Early on in that program, there was a lot of bad press and some of the projects that were funded. Um, but like all good policy, it withstands these political challenges. And I think we're coming up on 20 years now for new market tax credits. And so, you know, hopefully the same that as this, the power of this incentive and the benefits uh, start to accumulate, you know, so, some of the bad press will, will die down or at least not be paid attention to as much. <laughs> so so that's where, that's where I think we are. And I do think we need, you know, we do need, I think we need reporting. Right, we need transparency. I don't know if it was it Peter Drucker said that you can't manage anything you don't measure, and I think we got to be measuring this stuff so we can improve it down the road, so we understand the effect of it, and you just have the data, and it also keeps people honest, right? I mean, when people are reporting, they tend to be more honest on consistent with the policy of what this incentive is all about, and so I, I do definitely think we need some reporting around opportunities. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think uh, I think. Pretty much everybody agrees that we we need some sort of reporting. To what extent we need it, and and what what level of reporting we need, and and who's responsible for collecting it, and uh, you know th those are those are some of the the nuances that that need to get ironed out. But yeah, and I, and and I hope you're right that the negative press starts to melt away here as this 
program becomes more and more popular. Uh, so to, just to get back to your point at the at the beginning there about the treasury estimates or the government estimates, I I believe that treasury has estimated that this incentive program is going to bring about a hundred billion dollars of capital investment into these opportunity zones. And so if you're saying we may be at about 20 billion right now, then that, that is, that is pretty much right on pace, especially considering the fact that uh, it's, it's pretty early on in the program still um, what we have another uh, seven years, essentially to, to invest dollars into the, into the incentive, if I'm not mistaken, right? It's correct. Yeah. Of course, you're probably going to get more early, um, you know, although I don't know, I think, it, I mean, obviously things are clearer now. So folks, you know, folks lost 5%, a 5% benefit So maybe wait for it to be a little more clear. I don't think it's that significant, you know, that 5% benefit, more significance in the deferral, the remaining deferral and sort of the back end benefit, you know, so. That's true. Yeah. And it's hard to predict the future. We're not sure if these trends will continue or if maybe maybe more money will come in over the later years or or less uh, and, and in some part it depends on market conditions as well uh which which are obviously very difficult to predict what well, john i want to talk to you about um some of the comment letters that you've made you mentioned them earlier that uh they've been uh, mostly successful that the irs has adopted most of the uh comments that you submitted over the uh, last couple of years, and the final regulations came out at the end of last year, December 2019. And uh, there's a few sticking points, even with those final regs. Uh, and I know you you have submitted a comment letter on those final regulations. Can you uh, recap some of the higher level points in that letter, and uh, and and what you'd like further clarification on still from IRS? You know, as I mentioned earlier, IRS and Treasury did a super job in listening to all the stakeholders that commented and implemented their recommendations in these final regulations. So, uh, but I think, you know, we, we as a group think there's still a handful of issues that really is most of which emerged in these final regulations and a lot of it in the discussion in the preamble, um, not in the actual regulatory text itself. So we felt it would be good um, to draft a letter commenting on these final regulations. Uh, and we felt that the issues that we were talking about could be addressed either through technical corrections to these final regulations, which, which are yet to be done, or some form of supplemented guidance, maybe even like an FAQ to provide clarity to taxpayers. And the FAQ, uh, um, I don't know if you've been on the government's IRS site, but there's a number of FAQs that, you know, that clear up some of the some of the questions around certain provisions of the statute. And so, and so we thought that, you know, that might be an avenue for them to address some of these issues as well. A couple of the issues that were in the letter, I'll, I'll, I'll just mention a couple of them that we talked about. Um, one of them was uh, an issue where we asked the question, to what extent, if any, an investor can sell property to either a qualified opportunity fund or a qualified opportunity zone business and then contribute cash equal to that gain on the sale. And so you're selling into a business or a fund as a, you know, as a taxpayer or an investor. You receive a gain, and you you know you contribute that gain as eligible gain, um, and then the quaf or the quasby can treat that as a purchase. So you know is that a good transaction where you reinvest the gain that you that you got from selling to the fund that you're going to be a member of or a partner of or an investor in? And so there was some discussion in the preamble where Treasury actually warned that if this 
type of transaction that I just discussed were successfully challenged under the step transaction doctrine, then the gain wouldn't be eligible and the purchase wouldn't be a purchase consistent with the rules under qualified opportunity zone property. And you know, when they say if it were successfully challenged under the step transaction doctrine, without without getting all, all the technical detail, what it really means is that there's no economic significance in the transaction. And so, you know, in other words, it was just it the transaction was purely for tax reasons and not economic reasons. And so they're basically ignored, you know, in tax law. And so what the government is doing is they're warning taxpayers that, you know, if you if you have a similar transaction that that, that is successfully challenged under this step transaction doctrine, then it's not going to count. You're not going that gain is not going to be eligible. And and they don't even go as far as saying that that later investment made the taxpayer a related party. So if you kind of follow these rules, you can't sell to a related party and you can't even sell to a party that you're going to become related to. That's pretty clear in the regs and, and we're we're good with that. We think that's that makes sense um, under the step transaction doctrine. It's and essentially so, just circular cash flow. Is, it, is that right? It's circular cash flow. Right, yeah. right. But there's a lot of confusion about this. Okay. And so folks are interpreting this as an absolute standard where no property sales can occur between the taxpayer and the fund or the taxpayer and the business and then, you know, followed by this investment. So, there's a, you know, in other words, you can never reinvest gain. We don't think that that's the case. We think that, you know, there are certain transactions that do not fit inside this step transaction doctrine. And so we just asked Treasury to clarify that, you know, to make sure that they make that clear and confirm that, you know, that it's not an absolute standard where no gain can be reinvested. So I think that would be helpful to taxpayers who are planning on, you know, selling their land to a fund, realizing the gain and reinvesting it. And, you know, they weren't planning on being greater than 20% shareholder or partner of that fund, therefore not related, but they do, they do want to be a part of it. And so we think there are certain transactions, given the facts and circumstances, that would fit and not be determined ineligible, uh, consistent with the step transaction doctrine. So that's one of the big issues. Um, another issue that we had is the case where additions made to non-qualified tangible property, whether that would satisfy the original use requirement. So let me let me give you an example. If you had a piece of property that wasn't qualified, either because you bought it from a related party or a business bought it from a related party, or maybe it was purchased by that business prior to 2017, that's a non-qualified asset. And so folks felt that even if you have this non-qualified building, that you can make additions to that building that satisfied as original purchase. And as long as you made enough of them, right, and as long as your good property ended up being 70%, or greater in relation to all your property, then it would be okay. And even though you have this sort of non-qualified asset, say it's a building, you know, you built, you bought the the building prior to, without thinking about vac the vacancy rules, you know, the, in other words, the building was was not vacant and you bought it prior to 2017, um, it wouldn't be qualified. But you're saying, hey, I'm going to put, let's say I bought the building for two hundred thousand, I'm going to put eight hundred thousand in. Uh, improvements on it, then I should be okay because 80% of my property is good. And, and that's really the rule for leased property. You can lease property regardless of sort of if it was original use or not. And the actual lease improvements, leasehold improvements that the fund might make or the 
business finding, it's it's looked at as separate qualified property or reasonable use property. And so we felt, you know, that we feel like additions to property that you own should be treated similar to additions to property that you lease. But there was a discussion in the preamble where the government um, provided that these additions to non-qualified property do not satisfy this original use requirement. And we don't really feel that there was any, you know, we feel like they should because there's really no tax reason they shouldn't. And there's no policy reason they shouldn't, you know, you're investing in the community. But they provided a reason and they their reason was that it creates an additional administrative burden on taxpayers and the IRS. And so knowing that you have to track this anyway, this additional basis, it has its own separate life and the like from a depreciation perspective, you know, we don't think that's reasonable. And so we went back to them to just kind of ask again um, whether they can confirm that if these would be good, this would be good property consistent with uh, the leasehold improvements. And it's really, there's a lot of folks that, you know, we're planning on adding to non-qualified property and it being qualified. So, uh, you know, before this rule, um, they felt they were okay. And now, you know, it's kind of created a little hiccup, but it's uh, hopefully it'll get solved in the technical corrections or through some further guidance. We did kind of hear informally, which was nice, that, hey, as long as you can track the basis, it should be okay. That that was good, you know, but it's kind of an informal comment. So, right, it'd be nice to get that in writing, right? Yeah. So those are a couple of the main things in there. There was some other stuff in there, but uh, you know, I believe it's in the public forum now, so you can folks can read it. I'll I'll be sure to link to it in the show notes for today's episode at opportunitydb.com/podcast. John, so that that the points that you brought up in that comment letter on the final regs aside, what are what have been some of the other big opportunity zone challenges that you and your clients have faced so far? You know, I mean, I think a lot of the challenges were from the lack of clarity, you know, on some of these uh, provisions. And now that we have final regs and a whole lot more clarity, you know, I think it solved most of the, the issues that folks have had from a technical perspective, other than these handful of items that we're, that we're dealing with in our final letter. I think from an industry perspective, I, I think community development, finance, you know, tends to get a lot of institutional investment. And folks that are traditionally in this space are used to that institutional investment, meaning the banks buying the credits and the like. You know, this world's a whole different class of investor. It's, it's a, there's a whole different way of finding those investors and raising capital, um, both from a legal perspective and just a, an avenue of how to find them. And so, you know, I think it's, I think it's, it's been frustrating for some of the traditional community development finance folks that, that aren't used to raising equity from individuals. But, you know, there's a whole host of other characters that are whole other, you know, other industries and organizations that do that for a living. So it's, it's not a bad thing. It's, you know, it's good to have this other class of investment in these communities side by side with some of the institutional investment for credits and the like. And so it, it may be a challenge for some, but, um, you know, I think it'll work its way out where they work together um, at some point as we as we move down this path in the opportunity zone world. Right. Yeah, it's a definitely a different class of investor. Probably has forced a lot of community development financial folks, as you mentioned, to kind of think outside the box in terms of uh, getting in front of investors with capital gains who have patient capital as well and can can kind of uh, absorb the nuances of of the opportunity zone incentive it's a little bit of a different 
beast and and obviously it's a it's a new investment vehicle as well which which makes which brings its own challenges of course so john before we before we go today i want to spend some time talking with you about the conferences that you've put on at Novogratic. Novogratic has had three opportunity zone conferences uh, already, uh, national conferences that have taken place in New Orleans and Denver and Chicago over the past year and a half or so. Uh, can you recap uh, those conferences briefly? What, what have been some of the big takeaways from from those past conferences? And then, and then I, I, I want to ask you about the upcoming conference uh, coming to Long Beach in April uh, in, in, in another minute or two here. Sure. So I think we might we might have put on the first at least large opportunity zone conference back in 2018. I think we were the first one out of the gate, and it was overwhelming. Um, the response we had you know, over 1,100 people that showed up. We ran out of room and had to video some of it on on site, and uh, that was a fantastic conference. Um, so I think we're the we're the pioneer. We're when it comes to conferences, and then. It's leveled off a bit when we went to Denver in the spring of 2019 and Chicago in the fall. You know, there's, there were a lot, there was a lot of competition, conferences. I want to call it competition. I mean, everybody's just trying to get the word out, right? But it seems like it's died down. There aren't as many conferences. And I, I think that the, the ones that stuck around are the ones that were, were the good ones. Um, and so I think that's a testament to, the, to what we've provided in those conferences. We've gotten great feedback. We always had great talent from the marketplace with real real marketplace experience on the panels to educate all the attendees on how best to use this incentive. We did a great job of keeping attendees abreast of what's going on in the marketplace and what we can expect. And that's you know how they can get out in front of any opportunities or or issues that are coming down the pike. So and then we've always made sure we had plenty of network opportunities. So I think folks have enjoyed our conferences from that from that perspective. Right. Yeah, there were definitely a lot of conferences in uh, in 2019. I think you, you're probably right. I think you were probably the first major conference in 2018. You kind of got ahead of it before uh, before a lot of other conference organizers could could react. You guys were obviously in front of this program uh, years before that even. So, but uh, yeah, the conference circuit has definitely died down here toward the end of 2019 and beginning of 2020. I think a lot of it is that folks, you know, like anything new, right? They're trying to see how they fit, right? And and a lot of them just realize they they don't <laughs> they don't fit, and so or it's a certain part of the marketplace that you know doesn't fit well, and so they quit having conferences or what have you. But I it, I think it's natural that it's uh, slowed down the circuit has slowed down. So. so John, talk to us now about your upcoming spring Opportunity Zone conference coming up next month, April twenty three and twenty four in Long Beach, California. Can you, can you tell, tell us a little bit about what you have planned for that? Sure. So we, we have a pre-conference scheduled for the 22nd, actually. And in our pre-conference, um, we give a couple workshops. Um, one's the 101, the basic workshop, which we learn the basic fundamentals on how this, this incentive works and how you implement it. But then there's also a 201, which is new this year, Overcoming Obstacles is what it's title. And that's really dealing with more of the complicated tech technical issues and how to structure transactions around any sort of issues um, within the within the guardrails of the, of the program. And so so those are the pre-conference workshops. Um, the basics is actually nine to four. 
Um, so that's a long day. And then the overcoming obstacles is uh, 9 to 12. And so that's the pre-conference workshop. And then we plan on having a welcome reception for networking that evening at 5.30. And so that'll be great. That'll be that's something new that we're trying this year to get folks together on the first day of the conference. And then, uh, as you said, the April 23rd and 24th, we have our main conference. Um, you know, the objective of this conference, I'd say we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of the zone designations. We now have final regulations, which we talked about. So it's really, it may be the first time we have enough experience and enough clarity to really assess, you know, what's, whether this opportunity zone incentive is at least beginning to live up to what the expectations were around it. So I think, I think it's a great um, opportunity, no pun intended, <laughs> to, uh, to really assess the marketplace where I don't know that we had, you know, that opportunity before because there was a little confusion around how to implement things. And, you know, this wasn't enough time to really start funding, um, you know, in, in a meaningful way. So, so that's our objective. And to really carry that out, we have some great panel topics and we've invited a great cast of characters. Um, you know, we start out on the first day, we have our Washington Wire, where we're going to talk about what's happening um, from the legislative landscape in Opportunity Zones. And we have some great panelists from that. Mike's going to moder moderate it, Mike Novogratik, um, Alfonso Costa, the Deputy Chief of Staff from HUD, part of that panel, Shay Hodkins, who um, is the CEO of Opportunity Funds Association, and then Chris Slavin from EIG is going to be on that panel. So that'll be a great panel to kind of see what's happening on the legislative front. And then we're going to move on into a panel, which I'm moderating, which we've titled um, State of the Opportunity Zone Marketplace. So we're trying to get a good cross-section of folks on that panel where we can really share our lessons learned over the past two years and assess, again, whether the incentive is living up to expectations. And then, you know, see what sort of their predictions are where this, you know, what the future holds for Opportunity Zones. We got some great panelists, including Martin Mudo, who's the founder and managing partner of Solar Impact, which has raised a lot of money, funded a lot of great projects. Uh, you know, one of the leading funds in, in the Opportunity Zone space. And then Jonathan Tower from Arcteris is going to join us on that on that panel, who who actually is focused on the operating business space. So that's that's something that's starting to take hold and progress as we have more clarity around these final regulations. So that's that's the sort of plenary sessions in, in the morning. And then and then we're going to have a couple tracks. We're going to have a fun track and we're going to have a business track. And so, you know, they'll, they'll run together. And uh, in the funds, we're going to talk about how to build your deal flow pipeline, how to structure multi-asset funds, um, strategies for investing uh, or for accessing investor capital. So those are sort of the fun, the fun track. And then on the business track, we're going to talk about investing in operating businesses, um, investing in real estate, and uh, combining the odds incentive with other incentives. So those are the those are the the couple of tracks we're going to have in the afternoon on Thursday. And then on uh, Thursday night we have a networking reception, and so that that's a good time for folks to meet and greet, um, do deals together. And then Friday um, we start out with implementing the final rules. We've invited. Um, some of uh, IRS chief counsel members. Um, and so we'll hopefully have a representative from the IRS um, on that panel to maybe clear up some of the gaps that we have in understanding some of these final rules. And so we're going to go through implementing these final rules on that panel. 
And then we're going to have a panel around Oz Community Catalyst, where folks can hear how to create community strategies and pro provide mo momentum for their Oz investments. And, and we're going to feature some of the Forbes 20 on that panel. So that'll, that'll be an exciting panel on Friday. And then we're going to uh, <clears throat> finalize with uh, measuring social and community impact, which we've talked about today, which is really needed. And we're going to we're going to hear on that panel how to implement measuring and what makes sense from a policy perspective. We we got some great folks on that panel, including EIG and CalAUS and and um and, and one of the uh, we've invited a, a few impact funds as well that are already doing measurement in in uh, collecting data, and so they can give us their experience on how that works in the marketplace. And then the conference conference ends, so that's uh that's a full lineup for. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, Jimmy. Well, that's that's terrific, John. A lot of really great speakers, panelists that are really pioneers in in the opportunity zone space. So I'm looking forward to it. I'll be out there as well, conducting a few podcast interviews that uh, uh, listeners of this podcast will get to listen to um, in the weeks that that follow the conference. I'm going to be interviewing some of the attendees and speakers there. So a lot of good uh, a lot of good discussions will be had there. Uh, for listeners of this podcast to keep in mind. Um, and, one thing uh, I forgot, Jimmy, to, to mention is at the on Wednesday's conference, we're actually going to uh, have a working group meeting um, for the members that, that get there in time for that meeting. And uh, that's at four o'clock Pacific time. And so if any folks are interested in the working group, um, they're, they're welcome to come to our meeting at four o'clock. We just ask that you uh, send us a note um, that you're interested in coming so that you know, we can make sure we have room for everyone. So, Perfect. Yeah, that's that's great to know. Great great to extend that invitation there. And I'll be sure to link to your uh, contact information in the show notes page for this episode as well. Yeah, John, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Can you, uh, before we go though, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and Novogratic and, and where they can go to register for the conference? Sure. You can go to our website, it's www.novoco.com, and on that website is an events portal, and you, you can find the Novogratic 2020 Opportunity Zones Conference. We'll give you all the details of the conference, the speakers, the agenda, the times, um, anything that you would need. All right, John, that's great. So they can head over to Novaco.com. And even better, uh, for our Opportunity Zones podcast listeners, I've obtained a promo code for 10% off registrations from Novagratic for the conference. You can use promo code NOVOOPDB. That's N-O-V-O-O-P-P-D-B. And that'll get you 10% uh, savings off of uh, conference registration. So uh, check it out at Novaco.com. And uh, also for my listeners out there, I'll have show notes on the Opportunity Zones database website for today's episode. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that John and I discussed on today's show. I'll make sure to link to the comment letter that Novogratik submitted to IRS on final regs. I'll also have a link to the conference agenda and the conference website and the link to where you can register for the conference. And I'll include the promo code in there as well. So you can just copy paste it if you need to. All right, uh, John, thanks again for joining me today. This has been terrific. It's been a pleasure. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. 
Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund Investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you.